Mash Matters, the podcast celebrating the greatest television show of all time, hosted by a guy who loved the show and a guy who was on the show. I'm Ryan Patrick and my partner in crime, Mr. Jeff Maxwell. Hello, Jeff. Hello, Ryan. I did used to be on the show and it was a wonderful experience being on that show. And boy, do we have a wonderful part two featuring somebody else who was on that show who will just be riveting today because she is going to talk about so many interesting things that all of us who love MASH want to hear about. Yes, yes. So we are talking once again to Loretta Swit, and I think you're really going to enjoy the rest of our conversation. So without further ado, here is the conclusion of our conversation with Loretta Swit. So many people coming out of the woodwork to ask questions. This question actually came up a couple times. Moondoggy on Twitter said, how did you deal with the change in Margaret's character as the seasons went by? From Hot Lips, a character whose main purpose was to be the butt of the joke, to the well-rounded, caring, and sympathetic Margaret, a really cool person. It was quite an evolution. That That's a question that came in several times from Moondoggy and from Justin Hickert. Okay, uh, there's a, there's some, um, the, the question contains two words, one of which is more accurate, as opposed to change, evolution. Yeah. She evolved, and the writers and producers uh, well, the writers contributing, uh, definitely, but the writers and producers allowing me that freedom and allowing me to evolve. Uh, mostly, uh, Gene needed the most convincing, I think, because he had episodic mindset. Now, that does, it didn't matter how it ended. You began a new life or something. I could not work that way. And uh, they um, gave me the benefit of the doubt and, and allowed me to continue to grow as the character and fights for some moments of more integrity that they would um, lose if they were trying to make her very efficient by yelling at a nurse uh, for the wrong reason, uh, you know, uh, whatever. And, and evolution was great. I mean, it, it wasn't something I had to deal with. It was something I wanted, something I worked towards and something I would have meetings about and say, no, she wouldn't do that. This is, you know, blah, 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 blah. Whatever. So you were quite responsible for helping to influence that evolution. Yeah, I like to think so, you know. Well, sure. You know, it took a while, but uh, eventually everybody was on one page. And speaking of pages, they even changed her name on the scripts mm -hmm. it, where it used to say Hot Lips. It was Margaret. Mm -hmm. uh, even that was a part of the writer's bid for evolution. She was more than just one part of her anatomy. Mm -hmm. And then they had her making speeches about that, like either either knocking Hawkeye for his um, his ways with, the, you know, going after women. And there are some wonderful speeches that she has. You know, you're not God's gift to women and blah, 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 whatever. And that was great. It was um, she was, I'll tell you, for the 1950s, when this was supposed to have happened, she was a feminist before the word was coined. Yeah, she was. But there have been there have been lots of writing about that, that people in retrospect are now recognizing that. And giving me a lot of credit, but I mean, it was also a, a communal effort to arrive at that. She was full-blown character. On closer examination, all of the characters did evolve, you know, and we also learned a lot from 
tackling different situations that had never been addressed. Mm -hmm. So I remember Alan and Wayne, for example, talked about how they were always drinking, drinking martinis, martinis, and then choppers. Well, how if you're that kind of doctor, how do you go in there half loaded with martinis and do the best work you can? So they started addressing intoxication, addressing um, alcoholism and so forth. They brought in a wonderful gal, um, actress, a friend of mine, a nurse. She had a drinking problem which I didn't recognize at first. And then once I did, I had to deal with that and take her out of the OR. And she was brokenhearted. I'm an OR nurse. No, not here. You're not. You, you get fixed. You get, you know, and, and so they were dealing with that kind of uh, reality. You can't keep doing that joke, let's say, as a mash would. And mash would deal with the reality of that joke, of, of that drinking, of that whatever. Mm-hmm. So what are some of the other issues that mash dealt with? They dealt with um, racism. I remember there was a wounded soldier didn't want any bad blood indicating a black nurse, for example. Uh, there was a Turkish Greek big thing. They were fighting each other. And so they were trying to deal with real situations in a real way. And my, my favorite expression, I don't know whether it was Wayne or Alan, they said, this is not a John Wayne movie. This is trying to deal with the situation, which was an impossible situation mm-hmm. at the front with doctors who didn't want to be there and nurses who volunteered to be there. Give them uh, that credit I know that the producers got uh, letters from um, people who had been in mass units or had been cared for by mass units. And they said, as crazy as you guys are, we were crazier. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. They said that, you know, you can take it even further. And, you know, Mm -hmm. as you know, we were pretty wild. It was pretty crazy. (laughs) There's a comment. uh, Somebody wrote in something. I just have to read this. It's kind of cool because it reflects a little bit on what you've been talking about. Uh, Listener Jennifer Smitter Taylor uh, says, MASH was one of the very few shows I was allowed to watch as a young girl. Mm-hmm. I wanted to watch things like Charlie's Angels. Of course. But my dad didn't want me to see women portrayed as sex symbols. I grew to love the in-depth and laughable faults the MASH characters had. Yes. Loretta's character showed strength and compassion in the workplace and respect among her peers. Mm-hmm. She was a powerful character to shape my idea of a woman. There you go. There you there go. There you go. Boy, oh boy. I turned down a role. And the tea, I feel I have a certain responsibility if I'm being watched by a young mind. I have a certain responsibility. Margaret was not a joke. Give her a sense of humor. And I'll be funny, too. But I will not be put down. I will not allow myself to laugh at deprecating humor. I will not laugh at a joke that puts down a woman. So I had these guidelines. I I still do. Now, somebody will say, yeah, you played a psychopath, a killer. On a, I did a movie. Oh, God. I did a, a movie with Barbara Eden. And um, there was no room for growth. Uh, I, I shoot somebody in the first five minutes and you have to see right away that I'm mentally disturbed. So how do you, how do you take that character and still teach something? How do you, how do you make her not an object of contempt? 
as a woman. Okay. What you do is find a way to show the audience they must have compassion for her. Mm -hmm. Yes, she's doing wrong. Why? Is it her fault? No, she is ill. She needs help. So my job is to make it really clear that the audience must find a way to help her and to have compassion for her situation, for her issue. So that's what I'm all about. Now, just recently, I turned down an offer. In the description, uh, I knew immediately they were, they were writing some stereotypical idea of a uh, Beverly Hills woman, you know, lip glossed and high heeled and manicured or whatever. And I, there was nothing in the script that would, would help me change that stereotypical description. And so I passed. But I have a lovely agent who happens to be a woman, and she understood totally what I'm talking about. I'm not going to play that part and have some young woman watch me do that and think that's okay. No. There was no redeem. In other words, she didn't get punished for her behavior. She didn't get judged by her behavior. She, didn't, she was like accepted as that's how things are. That's how she is. Or that's how women are or something. I won't. I won't do that. Where do you think that came from? Because you could look at some other, and I'm not going to say that they're bad people for doing it, but you look at other actors or actresses, they may not have that same uh, mindset and they'll just take a role and go, okay, I'll do the woman with the lip gloss and the high heels and so what? But you can't do that. So you as a person are driven to to be a little better or to have a higher thought. Where did that come from? You're talking about your mom uh, I, growing I, up. And I have been responsible all my life. I was not loved and nurtured really uh, as a child. And I was responsible to myself to take care of myself. And that sense of responsibility pours into my work, uh, I think, because my work is so much a part of who I am. It is who I am, really. You know, uh, it's what I do. And But television, which is like a monster reaching out, enveloping the world, we have to be somewhat responsible for what we're putting out there. It's why, Mesh, that I loved that line, it's not a John Wayne movie, John Wayne encouraged young boys to enlist and save the world. And, you know, mm -hmm. we don't discourage patriotism, but we keep it honest. This is dangerous, you know, what you're doing. This is, this is, you can die. So they write a show for Alan called Sometimes You Hear the Bullet. And his, one of his dearest friends comes through and, and he gets wounded. He says, uh, I didn't hear the bullet and he dies. And Alan is weeping and McLean Stevenson says, there are things that doctors can't change. People die and doctors can't change that. This is terrific material that you're giving to an audience. Heroes and patriots die. And so young people watching MASH, if they want to enlist, they go armed with the truth. This is the truth. Mm -hmm. And and that's what was, I, I thought, valuable more, more than anything. So valuable, how we portrayed the honesty of being in that ugly, ugly situation where you're standing in blood, patching people together uh, who are so young. So, so I think that's how I approach things. A lot of people are going to be watching this. And I want them to see the best a human being can be. And, you know, I think you've done that in your artwork, too, looking through that book. 
all your paintings reflect something that just goes a little bit beyond <laughs> just the painting of a of a sweet animal. There is there's all there's all kinds of responsibility and care and love in those paintings. Yes, it's very clear and evident. Yes, well, you know, it drips over <laughs> to <laughs> every to every phase. It does. It it pours into every phase of life because life is about life and death and life and care and um, so. For example, uh, when you're talking about animals and you say, don't, you don't buy an animal, you rescue, you adopt, or you foster, or you volunteer to walk the ones that are needy and, and in shelters, or you don't support an industry as evil as these uh, puppy mills or kitten mills. You don't do that. You give part of your energy to ending the existence of that evil. Now, I sound like I'm talking about the Axis in 1938 or what. I'm talking about, <laughs> talking about evil. Cruelty in any form and in any year is evil. Mm -hmm. Whether you're abusing a child, a spouse, a dog, a cat, a goat. And so, for me, it's, it's one, one big circle. Uh, you have respect for life on this planet. You have respect for your kid treating that child and pouring stuff into that brain and that mind that's healthy and has integrity. The child grows up with those values you give them. So being a parent is responsible. And, and responsible parents will show reruns of MASH to their children as early an age as possible. <laughs> Because <laughs> MASH was a very moral show. It was, yeah. We babysat. They could trust us. Ryan, you had, that's your experience, isn't it? Your, your experience growing up with MASH? I grew up with the show. My mom loved the show and I watched it with her. And I remember uh, the finale crying my eyes out mm. because the characters in the show became part of my family. Of course. It was so sad to say goodbye to them when that time came. So yeah, it meant a lot. Like building those relationships with the characters. And, and I, I'd like to ask you a couple of questions about the characters with your fellow actors. We all know the relationship with Margaret and Frank, Ooh. but what was the relationship with Loretta and Larry Linville? Oh, we, we liked working together. Their relationship in an episode was always, uh, not always, but mostly isolated. Mm -hmm. So Larry and I, with every director's permission, would prance off on our own, work the scene, rehearse the scene, would do everything, the block, would do everything, come back, and on a break, we would take the director on the side, and we would show him what we were going to do, <laughs> and he said, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> so we would just do it. We'll go out there, then light it. <laughs> and so that Larry and I, that's how we worked. It was wonderful. Yeah. And um, he was amazing. They would write pages of nonstop dialogue for Frank. And then uh, Larry said to me once, Gelbart found out that I can study and learn lines like this. So he writes pages of dialogue for me. <laughs> but Larry, Larry Linville would come in so prepared. He'd know where the commas were. Yeah. I mean, he just, he was the, uh, the real ultimate professional one came to that. It was, it was a Shakespearean actor. I mean, all the, the, what we had mostly in common was stage work, 
the, the first five, we all had an extensive stage background. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe not so much for Wayne as much as, but he had done a lot of television, a lot of, so he had a different kind of experience. But everybody um, else was stage and stage trained. And, and th- in a sense, I'm saying they come with a different kind of discipline. Mm-hmm. When you're doing stage, you can't stop and say, could I do that again? <laughs> There's a, a discipline uh, about learning the lines and being ready to just shoot them out mm-hmm. that you have built in. It doesn't occur to you to say, can I do another one? <laughs> you know, so, <laughs> so, um, so we had that working for us. Yeah. You know? Just to go back to you and Larry, when I used to watch you and Larry do these scenes and you were doing them in that, in your tent and the size is kind of like a, I mean, it's a small area, a very small area. It's kind of like a, a small, you know, restroom and a gas station. <laughs> this yeah. wasn't a great big room. Closet. Yeah, a closet. <laughs> and watching the two of you do this wonderful dance while you've got great dialogue <laughs> and you're doing the rhythm and you're doing the jokes and you're doing the dialogue, but you're moving all over the place. It was it was physical poetry watching you two do that. You were both that's just nice. gorgeous yeah. at it. Absolutely. I used to stand and go, that's really good. <laughs> that's just beautiful watching that. I wish Larry could have heard that. He'd love to hear what you're saying. I believe he's hearing. He's probably listening. I hope he is. Yeah, it, it was true. It, 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 I, I will never forget some of those scenes and it made a lasting impression on me. You know, you thinking of me, if I'm going to do anything, I'm going to do it that good because, boy, that was really good. But we also had some really fine directors mm-hmm. coming through uh, that helped a lot with the choreography because they knew how to work in that limited space. Yeah. Everybody, it was everybody really pulling their weight. So when you are an actor on a wildly popular television show, and then one of your fellow actors decides that it's time for them to leave the show. So you had Wayne leave, you had McLean Stevenson leave, Larry left, uh, Gary Berghoff. What was your take on when, when somebody wanted to leave a show at the height of the popularity of the show? Well, Well, Mac's announcement was a big surprise to me because he was so successful at what he was doing. He was the first actor to win a Golden Globe. Why do I remember that? Because he asked me to accept it for him. So obviously, Mac and I were good friends. Now, I said to him, what is your thought process here, Mac? Why are you leaving? How how are you crazy? (laughs) You know. (laughs) And uh, he said, Ma, he called me Ma. He said there was this maternal nurturing that I did with all the guys uh, to a degree. I think that's quite true. But anyway, he said, I know I'll never be in anything this good again, but I have to leave. Oh, gosh. Oh, I said, you can say that to me and mean it, obviously, and still go. What? This is this is what needs explanation. Yeah. He said, I really want to be number one of one. Oh boy. I said, Mac, I don't care that you have third billing and you shouldn't care about it either because you are number one on this show. I mean, he was getting all the praise. He was getting all the jobs. They, he was on nighttime television. He was replacing Johnny Carson when he was away. I mean, he was, everybody wanted Mac, Mac, Mac. And he was really number one and he won a golden globe first time out of the box i said how can you feel that you're you are number one 
And um, unhappily, and I wish I had had the words, Max Genius was in reacting. Yes, he was funny, but his reactions to that which was around him was what made him number one. Mm -hmm. If you watch the early, the three seasons, Mac, his reaction to the generals, to Gary Berghoff, the thing they had with this ESP was, <laughs> was it would talk about choreography. Yeah. They were genius, those two. But all his reactions, his reactions, he's walking out of a tent with a general and clingers on duty naked with a rifle. <laughs> and now his reaction to that, you, know, you, you, didn't, you didn't have to see Jamie. You just watched Mac and you were hysterical. Yeah. So his genius was that. And number ones generally don't do that. Yeah. They set the tone. It's like, take Mary Tyler Moore. She didn't win the Emmys first out. Everybody around her reacting. All of the supporting players were winning Emmys. Yeah. And she was the show. Yeah. So that's because they recognized the genius of the reactors. And Mac was the most extraordinary. His reactions just... It'd be uh, somebody came into his tent and there was a clothesline with stockings and girdles and stuff. And like, you know, it, and his reaction to trying to get rid of that. Right? <laughs> and he was a physical, physical comic. He was just really brilliant. And one of the funniest guys. And he didn't. I don't think he, he didn't recognize that about himself. Yeah. And certainly, you know, he would he would have everybody in stitches, you know, between takes. You you couldn't say oh, anything. Oh, God. He Exhaustively. Just, he'd go off on rips, riffs and you go, oh, my God, this guy yeah, is he just funny. He, nonstop. Nonstop. We were in agony half the time when we went home, my ribs from laughing and just <laughs> he gave me all my wrinkles and my laugh lines. Oh, thank you, Mac. Oh, thank you, Mac. <laughs> oh, my, he was one of a kind, no question. And losing him as a character was uh, that was pretty uh, pretty difficult. Uh, frightening, uh, frightening. Until the genius of of our people, Gene and Larry, can give us Harry Morgan. Yeah. And what was wonderful was the different character that Harry presented as our commanding officer. You know, he was everything to everybody, and he was a commanding officer. When he said, do it, you did it. Mm -hmm. I mean, he didn't, he didn't fool around, and yet he'd have a drink in the swamp. He'd father me. He'd, you know, I mean, he was the quintessential commanding officer. He was just so perfect. We just, we were blessed. Mike, Mike comes in a totally different character from Wayne, totally different, uh, a loving husband, devoted father. And there was, there was Wayne flirting with a tree. I mean, he was just, you, Wayne, Wayne, Wayne walked into a room with that look, you knew he was looking for trouble. He was going to be trouble. He was looking for mischief. He was just had that kind of uh, adorableness, you know, he was just uh, so, so um, lovable in, in that regard. Uh, and never, he was never bawdy or, or um, he, di he didn't offend you with his um, skirt chasing. There was, a, there was always a mischievous twinkle back there. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I always had the feeling that 
he was all talk <laughs> yeah. in, 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 in his character. Yeah, yeah. That if push came to shove, there's there's no way he was going to uh, uh, betray his family or his wife or, you know, whatever. I, yeah. You always had that feeling uh, about him. I did anyway. And um, <laughs> he used he used to try to get a, a rise out of me. He called Mitzi, his first wife. He called her a good broad. She's she's really a great broad. And I'd look at him, you know, <laughs> he'd, laugh, he'd laugh. He'd say, "Gotcha." Swen <laughs> hates when I call my wife a broad. <laughs> Ma's looking at me. <laughs> Delightful, but but. Um, Wayne and I were very close friends. Mike told me that, um, that, that it was, he said when I was coming in, everybody reassured me that I would be loved and, and hugged and accepted. And it was going to be very difficult, probably, for Loretta because Loretta adored Wayne. They were very close friends and losing him was a real body blow. And, um, but she would be fine too. So he kind of, he felt like he was tiptoeing around me a little bit. But <laughs> I found this wonderful clothes tag. It was uh, uh, a clothesline uh, I never heard of, but Wayne Rogers. It was a Wayne Rogers clothesline. Not, uh, not him, but anyway, there was a, uh, a tag on a garment that was not the Wayne Rogers clothesline. And it read, Wayne Rogers says, get off my back. And so I wrote a note uh, and stuck it in an envelope and gave it to Mike. And he, he says he still has it. He just cracked up. <laughs> Wayne Rogers says, get off my back. <laughs> but I, I um, totally loved uh, Mike's character, his approach to the role and to fitting in and you know but i mean it was a tremendous responsibility yeah. oh my god he said if i you know it would run three seasons the fourth season if we started to slip it was going to be his, his fault, fault. <laughs> <laughs> he said can you imagine he said i i couldn't sleep i mean he said it was like yeah well Farrell just crashed that show down. He just he just sank the boat there. You know, <laughs> he said I had nightmares. <laughs> oh well, obviously he didn't. <laughs> yeah, he, obviously, yeah, he didn't sink the boat. And losing uh, radar. Uh yeah. yeah. But but you know, radar had been with the show for so long in a way he was the, he was the longest member really the, mm -hmm. the, the he had been the longest since he we inherited him from the film yeah so when he left it sort of was like maybe everybody is now going to be looking towards the end and this is true to a degree because we were starting to talk about pulling the plug nine ten you know, certainly I remember nine and we're going to go for a 10th season. Okay. But the 11th was really pulling that belt to the last hole in that belt or, you know, because everyone was in accord. And then the writers mostly said they, and producers, they didn't want to start repeating themselves. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, Larry Gelbart used to say there are only seven stories in the world. Everything else is a variation on, on those seven stories. And I believe that. I believe that's true. Having watched film all my life 24-7, I was 
I've always been addicted to uh, actors and acting and watching. And I got that also from my mom. We would go to two double features. Now, that's four films you're watching in one day. Aha. Uh-huh. I mean, we were really, yeah. Okay, so she was a film, uh, a real film uh, Film buff. buff. Oh, okay. Actually, do you, are you familiar with The Purple Rose of Cairo, Woody Allen film? Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, yeah, you would be, Ryan. This is uh, the story of a woman who was in an abusive relationship, un- un- unloved and poor and uh, working hard, and uh, she's married to a bum kind of character who's unemployed and not looking for a job and she's you know okay and so she goes to the movies to escape and she pictures herself up in that screen and what happens in the movie is lovely lovely uh, dreamlike movie as the character comes down from the screen and romances her anyway that's that's briefly what it's about well, that was, I think, my mom's whole thing. Uh, movies to her were great escapism, the great escape. But she, she knew what to watch. She knew when something wasn't very good. I told Morgan Freeman I met when I went to uh, my friend Nigel Hawthorne was um, uh, nominated for Best Actor for The Madness of King George. And he took me to the uh, Oscars, which was uh, really mind-blowing because you're sitting with the Best Actor nominee. You're sitting in the first two rows. It's like you can't <laughs> believe what that's like. So I was, we were all in the green room waiting for a long time. Everybody's talking and nibbling and drinking or whatever. And I met uh, Morgan. And uh, I said, in order to appreciate my story, you would have to know my mother. Suffice to say that she didn't graduate grammar school. She was not illiterate, but she, she was not educated. But she knew film and she knew what was good. And we watched three, four films one day of a day. One of them was Driving Miss Daisy. And I said, so, Mom, what's, uh, I, I pretty much know what you're going to say. What's your favorite film, what we saw? And she said, oh, definitely Driving Miss Daisy was the best film. Uh, and I knew she was so much like Daisy. Of course, she was going to pick that film. <laughs> I said, well, you know, once again, Mom, you show your impeccable taste. Jessica Tandy won an Oscar for her performance in that. And Morgan Freeman was nominated for an Oscar. He should have won, she screamed at me like it was my fault. (laughs) Of course, she was absolutely right. Absolutely right. He gave an Oscar performance. He always does. I I don't know what that means anymore because it's so, you know, what, please. Uh, uh, He doesn't know. How to be bad. He does. Yeah, you're Gives right. A seamless performance. He's, he's amazing. He's amazing. Mm-hmm. So, so I told him that story and he smiled. He said, um, please thank your mother for me and tell her that I agree. He said, I really thought that was my shot. Uh, you know, no matter how good you are or how hard you try, you don't always get that kind of material. And Daisy's Hoke, that was, you know, a gift. Yeah, He said, and I really thought that was going to be my shot. I said, but Morgan, you do know you will get it either this year or next year because they have to make it up to you. They, you, you, you did win. You just didn't get the statuette. So for something else, that probably isn't as challenging or as rewarding. You're going to get payoff, you know, and he said, yes. I know that. Yeah. Uh, but, oh, he's a delightful man. He's just a delightful man. But I was so happy to, to be able to tell him that story. I mean, my mother was so 
adamant. She jumped on me. He should have won. You know, it's like, yeah, ma. <laughs> Control yourself. <laughs> you know, people have said, uh, just, just to talk about actors for a second, people have said to me, well, actors are, are, uh, are very... Uh, egomaniacal and actors are are very insecure and those two are are a little <laughs> kind of a opposite uh, descriptions but do you think actors are either egomaniacal or insecure was that is that fair to say about the profession and those people? Well, you, you're, you're generalizing the, the profession or because each thing, each actor is an individual. Uh, I think uh, one, one of your questions is uh, answerable. Uh, you can be both. Yeah, you can be aware of self, which is ego. You have to be to be and you have to study yourself. You have to have insight. When I say have to, I'm talking about you want to be very good at your profession. You you need insight into your own issues, your own problems, your own whatevers in order to take them out and use them to create a character, to be somebody, to do whatever. I have to have a craft to create Margaret or Mame or Daisy or whoever. I need to draw out of me. It's not a coat that I put on. That's not my craft. That's not the way I approach a role. So ego is terribly important. Ego, if you, if you say it equals confidence, that's terribly important. I have to feel secure in my craft that I can do something. We can be shy. We can be introspective. We can be, uh, what was the other thing you said? Can you be egocentric and, and, and at the uh, insecure? <laughs> insecure? Yes. Are you kidding? Of all the professions in the world, <laughs> I mean, from the beginning to the end, you don't know where your next job is coming from. You don't know if you'll ever work again. As Sam Waterston always says that, you know, after every film, he says, well, I got away with another one. You know, <laughs> I, he always feels that that may be the last film I'll ever do. <laughs> you, you never shed. I think you never shed completely what that feels like. And there's nothing, I don't know if it's such a bad thing in a way to be insecure. Maybe it makes you a little shaky, but I think maybe it makes you work harder. I don't know. I don't know, but I think that um, the best of the best has those insecurities. Yeah. But, it, but really, it all boils down to motive for me. What is your, why do you, you want to do this? Uh, if you're in school and you're talking to classmates, well, one wants to uh, go to the great parties and wear glamorous gowns and glitz and bling and so forth. Well, you know, that motive is going to color the kind of work that person does. Uh, another one wants to make his mark, uh, make a footprint and, you know, well, that's cute too. It's not a very pure motive. But I think you make your mark. That's a byproduct. That's like going back to the ad. All we did was our best. The rest is history. Mm-hmm. What, what you leave behind is your mark and your footprint. But to get it, to make it, you must do good work and hard work and you must work at it. You have to love the work. The work for me, I had a remarkable teacher, my mentor. The work was the journey. You had to enjoy the journey. You had to love the journey. I look back at some of the stuff that I've gone through or being broke or poor or whatever. That was the journey towards what I wanted. My motivation was 
to get there. And I was not aware of how hard or demanding the journey was. Mm -hmm. I was just going forward all the time Mm -hmm. to where I wanted to be. And I wanted to be an actor. And you sure did. (laughs) (laughs) You sure did. That was that was a beautiful thing. I thank you very much. You know, people have said that over the years. I, I've had people say to me, oh, and they they say it was kind of a sneer. Oh, actors are egomaniacal. They're just full of ego. But you described that perfectly. You ha- you cannot go through this world without an ego. You can't. It's impossible to do. And it's it if, be, in in any profession. Any I profession, think. exactly. Uh, yeah. You have to believe in yourself. You have to. Uh, that, yeah. But with acting, because it is an insecure desire and insecure profession and it's an insecure ambition if you will mm-hmm. you really have to want it you have to have i used to call it a fire in your belly yeah i remember my uh, my teacher once um we were having lunch and i had met one of his pupils earlier and uh he said uh, what was your impression of her she wants to be an actor uh she's gonna you know enroll in the class and i said I no, I don't. I don't think um, uh, no. He said, "Well, what? What do you base that on? Really, it's just a feeling, or there's no fire in her belly." I said, and he laughed. He said, "What a funny expression!" But I think it describes drive. I teach master classes, and if somebody says to me, "What do you advise me to do? What should I do?" They should do something else. <laughs> you don't ask for a shortcut. You don't add. You just do it. Mm-hmm. You find a way. You go to where you're going to learn. I went to different schools before I found my teacher, my school. I was at the American Academy, the Actors Mobile Theater. Uh, I forget half of them. I wasn't finding what I wanted. And what I wanted was what I got in Jean's class, first class out. I knew this is my language. This is the man who's going to teach me how to find my craft, mm-hmm. how to use myself. Which basically is the definition of the method, by the way. You just, you use what you have. So your ego has to help you find what you have. Mm-hmm. You, you can't do it without an ego. I, that's, ego is I. If you don't have I, you don't have me, what do you have? Mm-hmm. So uh, you, you need to be able to put that, even the shyness, even the insecurity, you use it in a show, in a part. Or a, you, you remember what that is and you bring it out as a part of that character. Mm-hmm. You talk about the nurses, for example, and Margaret's loneliness, lonely at the top. I have been lonely, whether it's moments, hours or days. I have, let's say, stepped on a cockroach. I have murdered. I have killed. I have had, before I'm seven years old, I've had every life experience there is. I need to be able to fish inside of myself and use that. Mm-hmm. Bring it out and use it as a part of my craft. Mm-hmm. So when I was doing that scene with the nurses, that's what happened. And I use those words purposely. I allowed that to happen. I allowed the nurses and the audience a look inside of what was going on with Margaret Mm -hmm. that she has hidden, that she didn't want people to see, not only not want them to see, she felt she'd lose ground if she allowed somebody to see she had feelings because she was, quote, in charge. 
of 25 nurses. She was responsible, but in so doing, she had to bury her feelings. And so what we have here is an explosion of that. But what we do with our craft is we try not to cry. That's why when I gasped, everybody just felt the pain mm -hmm. because I was still trying to swallow it. Wow. Uh, but that's, I mean, I, I feel like I'm doing acting 101. <laughs> well, you just did. You gave, uh, hey, yeah. you gave a lot of people an acting lesson. That was just beautiful. Where do we send the check? <laughs> I, I, have, I have one other. To my charity, Sweetheart <laughs> Animal Alliance. Yeah, okay. We have, uh, we've kept you on a long time. I just have a couple of words just to throw out at, at you just before we leave here, because I think if we didn't, I'd feel bad. The two words are Alan Alda. Do you have a thought? I mean, you spent 11 years of your life uh, with this yeah. gentleman. Mm -hmm. and, um, so to speak. And he's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, your last name is Alda, so. That's know, right. You know. I can't wait and, to tell uh, Alan that. Loretta Alda. And he spent 11 years with you as well. So uh, you have a thought or just a comment about what that experience was like between he and you and what that was? Oh, for me, I developed a wonderful friendship relationship with him. I was uh, a part of his family. You know, he took me into his family as well. The girls would come to my, if, if Alan was uh, working late, for example, and they had come to be with him on the set, I would take them home with me and he would pick them up at my house. One of, I have many 11 years filled with moments. But I remember it was very early because he was still commuting. He was still in New Jersey. So it was like early on, first couple of years. And um, I was sitting next to him in our little green room there. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't think we were running lines. We were just sort of sitting there. And he looked at me and he had tears in his eyes. And he said, oh, God, I miss my kids. Mm. It spoke volumes of the man, mm. you know, mm. I just, uh, and I put out, I took his hand, I was holding his hand, we were sitting next to each other on those uh, director's chairs of ours, and I, he, was, he, he was just, um, was, then is now, such a, a full-blown human being with his writing, he, he always wanted to be a writer, he was always so happy to be writing stuff uh, for us and um, directing. I think acting, he's sort of doing it for so long all his life, it was natural to him to just act. But he really wanted to uh, be a writer and became one and uh, then started directing. And it was just uh, a wonderful journey to be a part of with him to come full circle like that. and. Um, uh, perfectionist. I loved that he was uh, a perfectionist. I remember we were, and, and I also enjoyed our frankness. We could say just about anything to each other. I, 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 I looked over at him once. Uh, I was playing drunk in the scene, and uh, uh, everybody was laughing, but that's not always a criteria, you know. <laughs> so I, I said to Alan, I think, I think that was maybe a little too much. 
He said, yeah, maybe. Okay. Yeah. Take it back a little bit. You know, this is before he's not directing or just actor to actor, which generally you don't find that kind of camaraderie. You don't ask another actor. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did all the time. Um, and so, uh, so I took it down a little bit. He, 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 oh, I remember he said, yeah, it was maybe a little broad. And so I took it down a little bit and I, and I loved it in dailies. I was happy that I had made an adjustment. And then at one point we were in a poker game, shooting a poker game. And, uh, Alan had this really funny bit and, uh, I had seen him rehearse it. It was hilarious. And when he shot it, he skipped a beat or two, which made it funnier. It bothered him. I could tell. He looked at me. He said, can I do that again? And the director, I don't remember who it was, said, no, it was fine. No, no. And he came over to me and he said, what? There was something. I said, yes. And I told him, you did this, that, and then you did that. And you missed that. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks. He went back and he brought back those moments. And, um, that's how we work. That's a wonderful, yeah. wonderful thing. It says volumes about trust. Yes. Uh, but it just, I mean, when you're working every day with people like that, it's just so, so uh, I think the world of him, of course. Wow. And um, I, uh, I see him more often than everybody else because uh, he's also in New York. So, um, that's a plus for me, and I cannot wait to tell him <laughs> that this lady called me the red hole. <laughs> I, I can't actually wait to tell Arlene. <laughs> oh my god! But the two, actually, the two of them, um, just uh, just this wonderful combination, this wonderful marriage that they have for more than 50 years. And um, please, please give him my best. Yeah, I will. I love his bone structure, you know, his integrity, his commitment, his allegiance, his his uh, perfectionism, his, you know, and of course, his talent. But, you know, that uh, that's sort of, you don't even mention yeah. that. Oh, yeah, and then that talent There's thing. so much of it there. <laughs> you know, yeah, that talent, that talent thing. Well, Ryan Patrick, what do you think? Have we kept this beautiful woman on long enough? Do, should we let her go have dinner? And <laughs> That would be nice. <laughs> <laughs> that would be nice, Jeff. <laughs> that, that, that would be nice. Thanks a lot, pal. <laughs> I wouldn't mind having a little something to eat. <laughs> Well, I think you you boys have behaved very nicely. You you have been so gracious with your time. Thank you so much. One one last quick question. This podcast is called Mash Matters, and here we are, forty seven years after the premiere of the show, and it's just as popular now as it was then. Why do you think that Mash still matters? Without going into many reasons, I mean, we've already said it's become a global fan. Um, I think the truth and honesty, you know, whether it was the actors being so true to the characters or the writers uh, writing how it really is and not glorifying war or, you know, you have to understand that before MASH, generally uh, uh, the uh, doctor shows, they they always cured. They never lost patience. You never, you know, it, it was unrealistic. I think the truth shall set them free, right? <laughs> I, th- I really think the honesty and the truth that we gave them, even with the jokes, even the joking did not insult intelligence. Yeah. MASH complimented 
the intelligence of the audience. MASH said to the audience, you're going to get this. What, what we're trying to do here, you're going to get it and you're going to love it and you're going you're gonna to really join our family, that kind of thing, subliminally. Uh, but um, the audience responded to the honesty and the truth. And, and we, tried to, we tried to do that, give them that all the time. Amen. And what a great conversation with Loretta Swit. Thank you for uh, listening to part one and part two of this interview. It's great to hear that kind of history from someone who lived it uh, and loved it yeah. and is, is passionate about not only the history of MASH, but about her own work, which is really beautiful to hear because so many people don't necessarily have that passion or share that passion. And she sure does. And it just speaks to what a wonderful person she is and, and how dedicated she is to the craft uh, and to humanity. Yeah. Uh, and to animal entity. Is that the right <laughs> word? I don't it is now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but she's a, a passionate woman who feels a great deal about life. Yeah. And once again, you can help by purchasing a book there at the link on our show notes. Go to mashmatterspodcast.com and find the link in the show notes where you can purchase an autographed copy of Switheart, the watercolor artistry and animal activism of Loretta Swit. And that money goes right to her cause, which is help animals it's it's a huge passion for her and if you're passionate about it too and you would like to show your support you can do that by purchasing a copy of her book it's great and it goes right to the charity which is wonderful i asked her if it would maybe could come to me and she said shut up jeff don't do that no going to my charity yeah so buy the book it's great you'll love the book there's great stories about her in the book and she shares a lot of things uh page by page and all of the animals that she's painted are wonderful to see. And uh, I think I've said the word wonderful many times now, <laughs> but I mean it. You know, when you got a wonderful situation, you have to say wonderful. And that's what it's about. And uh, hey, if you would like to uh, give us your feedback on this conversation we have with Loretta, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at mashmatterspodcast.com. Email us through the website. You can also find us on Twitter, on Facebook, on YouTube. And uh, you can call and leave a voicemail too at 513 43 364077. Just make sure your voicemail is under three minutes or else you're going to get cut off. And just want to say again, thank you, Loretta. I love you and uh, always will. And it's been a joy. And until next time, here's looking up your old address. Hey.